Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Christine Utram, who is the CEO of Everyday, the world's smartest digital tutor. Previously, she was the chief product officer at Veritas Prep. She also invented the Copenhagen Wheel, a Time Magazine best invention. In this episode, we go through how she started every day, what she's done to grow the company since, and where they're looking at in terms of opportunities for educating students through their platform. So much discussed in this episode with Christine, who has a plethora of product knowledge, which she shared in this episode. Cannot wait for you to listen. As always, the show notes are at discogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. And without further ado, here is Christine Outram, the CEO of Everyday, spelled every D-A-E, not with a Y, folks. Check it out. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, and there is a few things to discuss today, uh, obviously with every Everyday being the, the current thing you're working on. So I want to start with, with that. How did this come to be? Where did the idea for, for Everyday come from? And also, like, what is this exactly? Sure. So let's start with what it is. Um, so most high schoolers need help getting from ninth to 12th grade and then up into college or career. But the problem is... Tutoring can be prohibitively expensive, so only about 15% of families can afford a traditional in-person tutor. Uh, so with Everyday, you can ace your classes and prepare for college, all through fun, online, 10-minute micro-lessons that adapt based on your needs and goals. And unlike a traditional tutor that is $75 per hour and up, we start at $19 a month. So that's what we do. Uh, the idea for the company came from most of us worked at another test prep and admissions consulting company previously called Veritas Prep. Uh, we were extremely good at getting people into colleges and <laughs> passing their exams, but we're also, quite frankly, pretty expensive. And we actually ended up selling Veritas Prep in 2018, um, but we just sold off the traditional side of the business, which was in-person tutoring and classes and admissions consulting. And we kept some technology that we'd been working quietly on in-house. And that was an online adaptive learning solution. Um, so every student is different. And we believe that online learning should not be one size fits all, but that each student's strengths and weaknesses should be taken into account and we should adapt what they see based on how they're learning. So we kind of developed some this nascent technology in-house, sold off the main business, but kept this technology and then spun out this new company every day. Um, with the goal of using tech to democratize access to high quality education for everybody. With that, I mean, I love what you're doing with the company. Where does your interest in particular come from in this space? I mean, I'm kind of a tech design nerd hybrid. So there's two things that really interest me. Um, the first is just the nerdiness of the tech. Like how do we serve up the exact right thing for somebody at the exact right time? But the other part of it is really the engagement piece. Uh, if you've ever done an online course, uh, it might feel a little boring. In fact, completion rates for online courses hover at around 3%. Yeah, they're, ter 3%. they're terrible. They're terrible. <laughs> Get through the online course. And that just feels like a waste. Um, so my background is actually in first physical design. So I started out as an architect and then went into physical product design. So designed an electric bike. Um, and then went into 
um, the design of apps and websites and you know, digital products. And I just feel like we could do a better job of engaging students. Um, so that's partly why we break everything into these 10-minute bite-sized lessons, because that's the way the teenage brain works. And it's the way that kind of we can easily consume information and do some cool stuff on the academic side, like spaced repetition and, and uh, retrieval practice, which are two kind of buzzwords in academics but that work really well <laughs> for actually helping retention and helping people remember things. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about the engagement. I want people to smile while they use this and not just feel like it's, you know, begrudgingly going through a course, which a lot of online learning does feel like. And with that, then understand that you have you have like the tech side of this behind it. You have these capabilities, and you you can do this to build this product. Like, take me through how you actually were going through deciding on okay, what you're going to build with this, what this is going to look like. Uh, I'm curious about that because you have obviously a lot of experience in this. When you're thinking of spinning this out into every day to create this, like, how, where do you even start in terms of what this is going to be? Yeah, so we started with what um, we know really well, which is test prep. And we started, we've launched with the SAT um, test prep, which, uh, you know, during COVID, there's been a little bit of a shuffle with the SAT. Uh, However, we're still finding that people are still taking the exam. And so there's still demand for that. And really what we did to start with is we have this brilliant academic team and they took every previous exam and they literally cut up every single question. And then they tagged those questions based on whether they were foundational skills or whether they scaffolded to other skills. And then that created kind of a base learning map, which, you know, we believe every student should know. Um, And then from there, we can start to layer in adaptivity on top of it. So we're probably in kind of 1.0 of our adaptive learning goals. (laughs) But yeah, it's slowly getting there. And part of that is a different approach to teaching which is not just, oh, here are all the things you need to go, let's go through them, things you need to learn, let's go through them from A to Z. Um, It's about really understanding the micro skills and how they relate to each other to create a learning journey um, that can pinpoint what students are good and bad at. With that too then, understanding your role as CEO within this, then what are you most focused on day to day? Uh, I'm just curious from a kind of a high level perspective on that too. Uh, what all CEOs are focused on in the early days, absolutely everything. <laughs> so I end up doing um, a lot of the experience design. Um, so pretty much all of the kind of design side of things is what I'm running. But my major focus is on sales right now um, and marketing. So running our digital ads and then also kind of creating those relationships that can get us more sales with parents. We are a direct-to-parents product rather than through schools or districts. Was there a reason behind going that that route? Yeah, we'd had some experience with districts in the past. And to be honest, we're not close to selling to big institutions. Sure. It's just that it required building out a couple of bits of functionality that we weren't quite ready to build out. So, you know, district dashboards and things like that. Uh, so we figured we would test the water by selling direct to parents and have had a lot of success in the past with more of a direct to consumer model. And with that model as well, obviously you mentioned the sales marketing side of things, customer acquisition is huge. And that's, that's what the name of the game is essentially. How have you gone about doing that? What's been kind of your approach to getting people on onto every day? So we were, we launched during the pandemic. Um, we had a beta out in December last year, but really we you know launched our 
paid product during the pandemic. And we hustled really hard to get on a lot of resource lists. And that kickstarted um, a lot of our acquisition because, you know, you'll remember when schools initially shut down, parents were hungry for where am I going to go? What am I going to do? What am I going to give my kid? And yeah. so by being on these resource lists, that, you know, that kickstarted things. Then I would say we've done two things, two big experiments. The first was going after students and getting them on the platform. Uh, we actually found after a while that while some students would tell their parents about every day and, and they would end up converting, uh, a lot of students would, you know, kind of not. <laughs> um, and so we switched focus, focus and now we're 100% focused on reaching parents and showing them the value of just a little bit of study every day and, you know, how that can really improve results um, and kind of getting them bought into the method that we're using to help students. With that too, with the parents side of it, then is it a matter of you're creating content, you're having calls with them? Like, what are you doing then to kind of show them the value of every day? Straight up digital ads is one big part of it. Uh, focusing purely on Facebook, actually, um, that's where we're seeing conversions. Uh, then we have, you know, some placements, some paid ad placements. In fact, we're actually looking into working with some micro influencers as well. Uh, to reach parents. We know that moms in particular are the deciders in the household often for what to buy on an education front. Yep. Uh, so reaching them through other moms is, is a really good way to get them to know about every day. Then we're doing what I would call, I guess, relationship sales. So reaching out to PTA groups, PTO groups and saying, hey, you know, are you running a booster? Are you running a fundraiser? Um, would you like to have every day as one of the, you know, we're happy to give you some, some script subscriptions. And so just getting the word out that way as well. And then finally, the last thing we're doing is building out kind of a content and YouTube presence. We're pretty focused on SEO. It's a crowded space, but we're trying to find some, you know, ownable keywords and search intent. Sure. Uh, so we interview admissions consultants, parent coaches, and anybody in the space that we think is interesting turn that into a YouTube post, uh, blog posts, and then through that form a relationship. And they often then end up sharing with their network and their parents as well. So it has that nice spin-off effect. Yeah. And that can be so, so incredibly valuable, not even from just a strictly SEO perspective, but then once you have those assets anyways, I mean, you can use that on the paid side as well and repurpose that as well. And then the company, a couple of companies I've talked to, one being Monkey Learn, I talked to one of the co-founders there that they did a huge SEO push and they basically are dominating all the keywords within that category. And then you look at some other ones in the past, I just was talking to someone else with this about like HubSpot and Buffer and these different companies that really have leveraged that to, to grow the company through a, a incredibly strong SEO presence. And and to that point, one of the things you mentioned earlier was getting on a resource list. Was that just a matter of, I mean, Google searching those things and then reaching out to everyone who created those lists? Like what did you how how was your you going about that process to get on those lists? That's exactly right. I mean, we were also lucky because we've been in the industry for a long time. And so we have connections with people who were on newsletter lists and everything else. And so there was a call to action, I guess, from educators saying, if you have anything, let us know and we'll put it on this list. So that was mostly, we either heard about it and then responded to the call or we went and searched it out. And with the paid acquisition side of things, you mentioned Facebook ads and that makes a lot of sense just for thinking where parents would be. Did you end up doing it in-house or did you go with an agency on that side of things? We've done a little bit of both um, in the past. So we've used 
an agency for a little bit and then we decided to take it in-house. So we're currently doing it in-house. I mean, we have a pretty strong team on the creative side. Um, and then I've personally run kind of Facebook ad campaigns in the past as well. So yeah, we decided to take it back in-house and do that right now. And for other entrepreneurs wondering, because uh, th- there is this debate between that, like, yeah, your in-house yeah. team versus out- outsourcing it to an agency. Like, I mean, what were some things that people should think about as they're kind of thinking through what they want to do with that side, running paid acquisition to either bring it in-house or to have uh, another team outsourced to, to handle that? That's a great question. And it's something that we internally discussed a lot, you know, whether we should take it on in-house or outsource it. In the end, what it came down to was priorities. Um, we really felt like we could crack the Facebook advertising in-house given our background um, and that we had the time and bandwidth to focus on it in-house. I think if we had other things that we wanted to focus on, then we would have kind of kept outsourcing it. Um, But that was, yeah, that was kind of the main thing that we were thinking about is do we have the bandwidth to focus on this? Can we give it everything we have in-house? Okay, yes, we're making it a priority. <laughs> Let's go do it. <laughs> yeah, and it is something that's so interesting to see how companies approach it. And one of the people I talked to recently, uh, Jesse Horwitz from Hubble Contacts, uh, they're a company that had raised a lot of venture capital, that I think 70 plus million, and they had gone the outsource route. I think they still continue to outsource because of like, the, the lessons and kind of learnings that these agencies are able to get working with multiple clients. But to your point, if it's your big priority and you have the, the capabilities in-house, it's like that is the time to potentially do it in-house if you have the expertise and everything within that. And one thing you mentioned too, with being obviously looking at like moms and mom groups and all these different options for that. I mean, through that process, how are you determining which ones to reach out to? I imagine there's a lot of different groups and it could be the black hole of trying to find which ones are worth, most worthwhile. How have you approached that side of things, Christine? Definitely. Um, so we work with this amazing Upworker and she often creates um, a spreadsheet of all of the different groups that we want to reach out to. And we have kind of a scoring mechanism for whether we think they're worth reaching out to you know how many followers they have how engaged their audience is and then it it is a lot of emailing um i think in the beginning you know they say do it by hand till it hurts (laughs) (laughs) we're we're definitely in that stage but we're learning from it um so for instance even reaching out to the admissions consultants that we wanted to interview for our youtube channel um you know we just made it a goal we're like okay what experiment are we running this week let's reach out to a hundred of them let's see how many of them you know right back and want to be interviewed. And then let's see from there how many of them are willing to share us with their audience and their parents. And and so that's ongoing experiments, I would say. Um, but a lot of a lot of grind, a lot of emailing. <laughs> perfecting the art of the cold email <laughs> oh my goodness yes it's such a valuable skill i think that's one of the top skills for early founders it seems like i've had so many people i've talked to who are like yeah we've sent out like thousands of emails tested so many different things and there's like a lot of these like by hand or someone you know just like one by one for a lot of these some, some can be bulk emails of course but uh that scale of cold outreach to then whether it be getting partners getting customers it's such a valuable thing and there's definitely a, there's definitely like an art are in a science in many ways to doing that, to getting your messages there opened. <laughs> and I think something that I was afraid of when I was kind of earlier in my career is bothering people. You know, I didn't want to email them too yeah. much. I was like, oh, I'm bothering them if I just email them back. And something <laughs> that a, a previous 
co-founder taught me was that she's like, no, you know, you wouldn't be bothered if they emailed you. You'd probably be thankful because it's just gotten lost in your inbox. And so she was really tenacious and, and I really took a leaf out of her book and, and I've just tried to, you know, not be so afraid and, and just keep going. And it, it does pay off. You know, I've emailed people several times, always in a nice way, personal way. You know, I, I try not to do um, just a lot of spammy cold outreach. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, over that, you, you build relationships and it's slow going, but it pays off for sure. And with every day, obviously there's a lot you're, you're doing with it now. And I'm sure there's many more growth uh things coming up next, but you funded this through WeFunder. I'm really curious as to how you decided to go the WeFunder route. Yeah, we had a really great experience with WeFunder actually, better than I could have hoped for. So that's awesome. We were thinking of raising through traditional VC and actually I had quite a few meetings really early on about this time last year, but it was before we'd launched the product. So it was kind of more of a meet and greet rather than a hard fundraise Um, and most of them were like you know come back to us when you have product traction you know usual usual stuff Um, and we were introduced to WeFunder through a friend of a friend and I just I really liked the people there Um, you know I'd I'd kind of talked with a couple of other fundraising platforms as well and and WeFunder just seemed to be a good fit talked with another founder from a company called Caribou and they had a fantastic experience too and Felt like we could do it and, and really felt like it was something where, A, we would be giving an opportunity to invest to many more people across the country who are not traditional investors. That was that was attractive. B, we'd then get this kind of army of investors who are also advocates. And that's that's definitely paid off. So they've introduced us to a bunch of different people across the country and and you know, we can send them things like, hey, can you send this to your network? Can you repost this on Facebook? Can you do these things? And they'll do that as well. Um, so that was attractive too. And just kind of, yeah, getting it off the ground. So all in all, it, it worked out for us. Yeah. I mean, looking at the page right now, it's $1.2 million raised through WeFunder at 1,600 investors. And to your point, like that was always something as I looked at a, a crowdfunding model for different companies, it's like to have 1,600. In some ways you can be like, oh my God, that's terrifying being the cap table, but it's, it's simpler with WeFunder I'm aware of. But they all can support you. They want to support you because they're invested in your success. So it's like, that's a great model to have. And and with that, with WeFunder going this, this crowdfunding uh, route for other entrepreneurs who are thinking about this, what are some things you did to, I mean, ensure this was, was a success because it's definitely done really well, it seems like. Yeah. So some things that we did, I mean, there's a little bit of prep before you launch. Um, so you've got to get your legal in order and your accounting in order, uh, then they always say that, you know, you should have some stuff, inve- have money invested before you actually go public. So we hustled to raise around 100000 just from family and friends and small angels uh, so that we had that on the page when we officially went public. Uh, from there, it was a series of just straight up hustles, I would say. I tried to over-architect the process. I was was like, you know, in the beginning, I was like, I'm going to have this spreadsheet and every day I'm going to know what I'm going to be doing. And honestly, it ended up not working out like that. It ended up being, okay, what can we do today that will move the needle? Who can we contact? How can we get them to share with their network? How many more eyeballs can I get to this page? And the biggest things that moved the needle for us were definitely online advertising. And we did use um, 
we did use an agency for that. So they ran all of the online ads. We had a $50,000 investment actually come from a Facebook ad, which was just oh, amazing. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> actually, it was, it was from a family, lovely, lovely family. Um, and the son saw the ad and was just really interested in what we're doing and reached out and we had a chat and I spoke with the whole family and they put in $50,000. So that was that was great. That's incredible. Other big thing was what a lot of people don't know is that there are these networks of I call them mom and pop angels. Um, so these are not people who are traditional investors. They're not full-time angel investors. They're probably not even on angel list, but maybe they own a plumbing business in Ohio and they're interested in dabbling in startups. Um, or maybe they have, they're a real estate agent in Virginia and you know, kind of they understand risk reward and they're looking to kind of diversify their portfolio. So these are kind of mom and pop angels and there are groups of them. So there's a group called Angels and Entrepreneurs run by Neil Patel. And there's another group called Startup Camp run by Chris Gravy. And both of these are kind of networks of these smaller mom and pop angels. And so we made relationships with both of these groups. And that was that really drove a lot of our investment. Um, so it was less traditional money for sure. How, how did you find them? How did you hear about them exactly? So... Angels and Entrepreneurs was introduced to us through the agency we were working with. Um, that was Aurora Project. And Startup Camp was really just hustle. So I saw that they had a, um, a podcast series and I reached out. I was like, hey, you know, you're looking for any female founders to interview. Are you doing a new season? And they wrote back and said, yeah, we are actually doing a new season and you sound great. And we tend to feed people who are raising money on equity crowdfunding because that's what we believe in. So do you want to come on the show? And through that, got an introduction to their network and then worked with them to get emails out to their network to, to promote the offer. And with, with every day then, with, with that going, I mean, WeFunder went really well for you. You obviously have this uh, product that people like and enjoy and uh, care about and want to support. Who is the team behind every day that's making this all possible? Uh, there are seven of us full time. Uh, we have a head of we have two people in our academics team, um, and then we have myself and another guy, Mark. Mark and I tag team on everything from acquisition through to product and customer relationships. Uh, then we have three engineers. So we have incredible head of engineering, former Intel engineer, and also kind of startup veteran, and two engineers that work with him. Uh, proud to say we we have a female engineer out of our three engineers too. Nice. So you know, getting getting some diversity in the team as well. In fact, we're pretty evenly matched for male-female ratio. Um, and so, yeah, it's so seven of us working full-time. And then we have a chairman and one other kind of major strategic advisor investor uh, who we meet with weekly. And the chairman put a lot of money in in the beginning. Um, so that was also kind of, that's what kickstarted every day. He was the former CEO of our previous company. So Oh, amazing. Yeah. And with that then too, so that's, that's the team you have today, understanding that you raised some money through WeFunder, that what was that use of funds for that? Was it building out the team that you used that for or some acquisition side? Obviously, it's a mix of things. I'm just curious on how you went about that. Two biggest, the two biggest things that we used the WeFunder money for were acquisition, and that's ongoing. So really being able to experiment with different marketing channels and seeing what's working. And we just needed a bit of extra money to be able to do that. And the second part was the academic course creation. So we have the SAT. We already had math 
out. Um, and so we hired contractors to then work on the reading, writing and language sections of the SAT. We're working on breaking down the ACT and then some advanced placement classes as well. So AP US History, AP Calculus. And so the content creation piece was where we put some money as well. And on that side of things, I mean, how are you looking at what you want to focus on for the content creation side of things to offer to students? I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go about that. I'm curious as to how you're, how you're viewing that side of things. Yeah, awesome question. Uh, internally, we did have a few strategy sessions about how to approach which courses to build. It came down to this. It came down to do we decide to do a breadth, breadth model where we launch as many courses as quickly as possible, but they might be more shallow? Or do we do a bit more of a depth model and where we concentrate on one thing, get it right, get all the interactions right, understand that it's working and then move on to the next course. In the end, we decided to focus on the latter initially, uh, just so that we could make sure that we had product market fit around our SAT product. But at the same time, continue in the background some of that course creation for the next courses as well. And we did a lot of research on what people were searching for. Um, where the market opportunities were, where the white spaces were, uh, as to which courses we were going to build. And with that, then getting feedback along the way. I mean, how do you how do you incorporate that from? You're hearing different things. I'm sure people are asking for. How do you incorporate that as you're making decisions or as you're moving forward with with every day? So we do two things to get feedback. The first is we have intercom in the product, and we get a lot of student feedback that way, which is fantastic. So I call that kind of experiential feedback. The second way is that after a parent purchases, because they do purchase up front before they try it often, we offer a 15-minute interview um, where we talk to them about what their goals are. But it's also a way for us to find out what their job to be done is. Um, and then nice. we're kind of collating that information to find out you know, how to build the product next. So because of that, we spun up some online proctored practice tests really quickly because everybody seemed to be asking for it. So we knew we had to focus on it. Um, and so it's, it's guided product development for sure. And, and to that point as well, I mean, is there a kind of like massive roadmap you have that you're working towards and you're just like, we're going this thing, we got this and this and this. Like, how do you balance kind of that like short term, here's the next thing we're going to do with that long term and what you want this to be uh, in the future as well? We have a quarterly goals that we work towards and that unite the entire team. Um, so we have some sales goals currently. And then we look at, okay, what's going to move the needle on those sales goals? So for instance, I just mentioned that we launched proctored practice tests. And that's great for students. It actually really helps them improve by taking a mock exam. But it's also a really powerful acquisition tool as well. And so when yeah. we looked at doing that, we were like, okay, we know it helps students, but right now we're focused on what can move the needle in acquisition. So yes, it checks both those boxes. Let's move forward and do it. So we don't necessarily have, I mean, we have goals in terms of what we want to get out for which courses and when, but I would more say the way we make decisions is based on this quarterly target. And and one thing you had mentioned earlier as well, Christina, you mentioned how this is such a different model from the typical like prep where it's $75 plus an hour for getting a tutor and everything. And yours at this, at least at the moment is maybe like a 1999, not even like an hourly rate. But like, how did you get to that point even of figuring out, okay, what's the business model going to be? What's the pricing structure we want to use? Because that's, I mean, it's a critical thing for businesses. It can change a lot with their company. I'm just curious on how you were looking at the pricing side and business model side of it. 
Yeah, so I should say that $19 a month is where we've started, but that will actually increase to $39 a month, which is a little bit of a sweet spot. Uh, the way we got to the $39 was actually to look at how we could be a um, you know, $100 million in revenue, how many students we would need to get there. Um, I'm doing some just kind of backwards math on that. The other thing we did is very early on is we did price testing with parents. And so we asked those you know, typical questions. At what point would this seem too expensive? At what point would this seem too cheap that you wouldn't even try it? Um, and then, you know, what point does it seem just right? So yeah, between some just back of the envelope math about what we <laughs> needed to do to get to like be a billion dollar company and then um, some user interviews, that's how we got to that $39 sweet spot, but with a starting price of $19 a month to get people in. The other thing we're doing is offering kind of annual rates and at the moment a lifetime special actually, so $99 for life. Uh, we did that because we found a lot of parents with younger students just wanted to get in and try it um, and $99 seemed to be a sweet spot where they don't even have to think about it. They can just put it on the credit card and, and get it done. Yeah, it seems, I mean, there's so much to, to go through in terms of pricing and thinking about what that might be. And it, it does involve a lot of testing and it's an iterative process. And yeah, we're still uh, figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's always, uh, I mean, for anyone, any, anyone's business, it's like a lot of people I talk to, they're like, yeah, what's your pricing? Too low. Like, like it's just, they're always thinking about how they can, you know, increase it. Or like I had, um, I think it was Christian Pepperelli from We Are No Code mention how he had students going through his kind of like no code program, literally telling him to raise the price. Like, this is like too valuable. So that you should like double this. So he's like double this price. <laughs> and it's just insane. Like, but it's a, it's a, such a science and art as well to that whole process as well. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's just that test and learn mentality, right? It's how fast can we figure out whether the market will accept this price. And we'll definitely be doing some price experiments come September. Um, so that's, yeah, that's definitely on the docket. Yeah. And on the, on the kind of note of, of, of testing as well, it, we'd have to go through kind of some of the other things you've, you've done throughout your career and having so much product experience, whether it be at, at dog vacay, uh, with inventor as well. I mean, on the product side, let's go through how you came up with the development of the Copenhagen wheel, which was a huge, a huge thing. Uh, and I think was it super pedestrian using it now or selling it now. How did that come about? Sure. Uh, so as background, um, you know, I started out my career as an architect, but architecture takes a long time to build anything. <laughs> I was always fascinated with, you know, something which is a little faster paced. Yeah. And I first came to the US to do two years worth of study slash research um, at MIT, looking at how technology was impacting the way that cities are developed. And it was through that I started working at a lab called Sensible City Lab. And it was also around the same time as the iPhone came out. And so the iPhone was just like mind blowing, you know, it's oh, yeah. computer in your pocket, can do anything. I can collect all this data. You know, there's just so many possibilities from a smart city's perspective, a, you know, how do we, how do we just live, work and play with this new device? And one of the things that we did at Sensible City Lab was we would work with different cities on various problems. Um, and the city of Copenhagen came to us and said, you know what, we have, I guess what I'll term as an interesting problem. You know, we have 36% of people who ride a bike to work each day, which is pretty good, right? Yeah, um, but we want to increase that to 50% of commuters. And they're like, we've tried everything. You know, we've done physical infrastructure. We've done 
um, you know, we've, we've changed policies and we've, you know, had encouragement programs, you know, all these kind of different PSAs. And they're like, you know, it's kind of plateauing. What can you do? So we worked with them for a semester to come up with different ideas. And one of those ideas was an electric bike. And that came out of the insight that people didn't mind riding, but they didn't want to arrive at work sweaty. And, you know, they yes. wanted to, <laughs> or maybe they just weren't as fit as they used to be and couldn't handle riding that kind of distance. And so the electric bikes seemed to be the perfect solution. At that time, most electric bikes on the market were really clunky and ugly and hardwired and very expensive. Um, so we developed an electric wheel that could plug into any bike frame and turn it into an electric bike. So plug and play. So that's how the idea came about. Um, it ended up being a collaboration between MIT and the city of Copenhagen in order to get the first prototypes out um, and then get the, the patent on it. And then from there, Superpedestrian licensed that technology and then has been spinning it out ever since. In that process then of understanding what the problem is and what you're trying to do with this and I mean, I'm curious to say, I guess, what were the the biggest challenges into making this actually work? Because I've seen I've seen the pictures, I've watched the video, I've seen some things on it, and it, it it's it's obviously innovative what you did with that. Like, what were the challenges along the way of actually making that happen? I think the big thing that I learned through that process is to give yourself very public deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a big deadline, which was showcasing the wheel at the COP15 climate conference in Copenhagen. Oof. And yeah, yeah <laughs> no pressure, no pressure at all. But it really did force us to focus on getting something out that was great within a, a certain time frame. Um, so that's that's something that I, that I definitely learned from that time. The biggest difficulties with it probably came afterwards when it was like, okay, this isn't just an experiment anymore. It's not just something cool. Um, how do you sell it and how do you find the right market for it um, and, you know, get people buying it, particularly as more competition flooded the market too. So, you know, the Copenhagen wheel has been out since 2009 is when we first debuted the prototype. And so it's been, yeah, a fair amount of time. Um, yeah. That competition is, you know, <laughs> a flooded market. Well, with that too, I mean, with your experience, like I said, in product, I mean, that was a physical product, obviously, looking at some digital products as well. Like I said, I mentioned Dog Vacay. From your experience creating products, I mean, for other entrepreneurs out there, aspiring entrepreneurs developing products, I'm just curious, like, from your knowledge, I mean, what are some things that are critical as you're going through this process of product development? And you know, you can go as, as de in depth as you would like, but I just have to ask because I think you have so much experience in the product side that other people want to know what they should be doing or thinking about things they wouldn't necessarily know without having your experience. Sure. Um, so there are three, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience about sure. process. different people have different processes, but there are three big things that I think about in product development. The first thing is, I'm constantly switching scales. So I'm thinking about what the big vision is and what the big goal is. And then I switch to kind of a very executional tactical scale. And I'm like, okay, does this small thing lead to that big vision? How is it moving the needle towards that big thing? So I think sometimes early in my career, I could get lost in the doing and just kind of doing for the sake of executing and kind of not 
putting my head up and thinking, oh, does this actually meet the goal? Like, should it be prioritized? But that's one big thing that I do often in product. I think the second big thing is I always ask three questions when I'm designing websites or apps or anything else. And that is, what is the primary thing I want someone to do on this page? What is the primary thing I want them to feel? And what do I want them to understand if they were to walk away after two minutes? And that helps me think about priorities. It's like, okay, where does that button need to be if I want them to take that action? And how can I deprioritize other buttons so that they actually take the action I want them to? I don't want to give them too much choice. Um, Or how do I want them to feel? Okay, what type of imagery or copy am I going to use to get them to feel that way? And then what, what do I want them to understand? Uh, because that's what they will repeat to other people. So what are the, you know, the little um, pieces of copy that they're going to repeat to someone? So that's kind of the second thing I think about with product. And then I guess the third thing, I've forgotten the third thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. The first two are such, uh, such gems from, <laughs> anyways, as you're developing products. I think it's important what you mentioned there, though. We're think, really thinking about being intentional, I guess we would say, with everything you're doing within this process. Um, and looking at that, the company I was at before, we were designing our redesigning our website. And just to hear the designers and developers talk through a little bit more of like what they're thinking for each thing, it's like fascinating as they're thinking about each and every panel, each and every image on the thing, video on the thing, looking at the copy for each section of it and really thinking about, okay, like what is this doing for us? Like why do we have this here? Instead of just yeah. there because they're like, oh, let's just add this thing because we can. It can become navel gazing. You can kind of get stuck in that creative world of spending too much time. And I'm personally working on this sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, kind of having that framework allows everybody to be on the same page about what you're trying to achieve. And I, I think that's the real secret is everything's an experiment. And so how do you find out the answer to your experiment as quickly as possible? And part of that's having a framework around what success looks like, because then you can measure and learn. As you've gone through, I mean, understanding how to develop products. I mean, what's been helpful for you to learn more of how to improve upon that or how to uh, improve your process? Have there been any books that have been helpful? I'm just curious if anyone's interested in like learning some more around product development. Uh, Measure What Matters. I think that's that's kind of a pretty seminal book that most people should read. Um, then Don't Make Me Think. Yep. Yeah, Steve Krug. I think that's kind of a, yeah, that's another one as well. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely kind of forward you a few others that I've read over the years. Yeah. And there's so many, I think it's just, obviously you had that experience of, of doing this at a variety of different places now too. Uh, and that gives you maybe a different angle, a different lens as you're going through, you have your process, but then also applying it in different ways. And I just wanted to people have that perspective of what product development kind of looks like as you're going through this and, and to bring it back to what you're doing at Everyday now, I mean, what are kind of the next things for you at Everyday and what you're what you're thinking of for growth as you as you move forward now? So it's partly about releasing new courses because we know that there's market demand um, and we just need to meet that market demand. And on the other side of it, it's how do we create that flywheel of acquisition? So we've started, we get people who share us obviously with family and friends, but we want to speed that process up. So I feel like we're starting to figure out the top of the funnel <laughs> and getting people <laughs> in. And now it's like, okay, how do we keep, create that virtuous loop? Um, and it's a little tricky for us because we have what I would say is a player, which is the student, and they play the game or they, you know, they study, and a payer, which is the parent. So you're pleasing both user groups. 
and you have to keep both engaged. And it's a little trickier than, say, I don't know, um, a dog vacay, where the person who is finding a place for their dog, they're paying as well. So they're pulling out their credit card. But in this instance, we, we need both people to like us. So figuring out that relationship between both of them and how we can create a virtuous loop is the next goal. And within that, I mean, how are you looking at that, discussing that internally, how you go about this? It is, I mean, it's, it's definitely different from what you said, mentioned at Dog Vacay. Like, how do you look at that then as your as a strategy perspective from that side? We use a number of different techniques. Um, we have kind of brainstorming sessions and we have a uh, an initiatives document that we rank based on whatever the goal of the quarter is. Um, or whatever the goal is, for instance, if it's creating a virtuous loop. And it's a little bit by gut. It's a little bit by how much can we experiment with this and find a, find out whether it's true or not. Um, and then what else we have going on <laughs> in terms of where the engineering team's time is as well. A lot of things we do, you know, we try and not touch the engineering team for a lot of things. You know, what can we do by hand? Um, you mentioned Christian Pevarelli. Like, I really love what he's doing with the no-code movement. Uh, yeah. We also have that kind of philosophy on our marketing side. We've shifted everything to um, the no-code side of things so our engineers don't have to create landing pages and, and do all that top-of-the-funnel stuff. Um, and so that speeds up experimentation as well. Yeah, and there is so much. I mean, there's so much on that side of things with no-code at this at this point especially. I mean, there's, there's so many tools to do essentially anything um, that you'd want. And obviously, we can't discredit the, the value of engineers, and they obviously are really, really important. Um, but for some of the things like landing pages, for I mean, using, using Webflow for that, using other tools out there that allow you to really customize any website, any web app uh, is super helpful, especially for scrappy teams mm-hmm. who are trying to get things done cheaper than using the development resources, which can be quite pricey. I mean, our engineers are so much happier with that. I don't know that they want to be sitting there fiddling with you know, the, <laughs> the landing page for one of our products. So they'd much rather be working on the adaptivity piece or um, you know, creating the new exciting study journey and some of those interactions and yeah. And I'm just curious, stepping back from from every day for a second here. I mean, what is it now at this point that is really motivating for you, inspiring for you in terms of the work you're doing, or what fuels you? Uh, I'm just curious about that side of things too. Honestly, it's hearing from students. Um, I think you know, I I would have loved a tutor when I was younger, and <laughs> I I didn't really ever have the opportunity and. You know, I, I, I just really love that we can give more students the opportunity to, to succeed and, and excel. Um, and hearing from parents that it doesn't suck. <laughs> They're like, you know, my kids used everything and they just hate it and they're just really bored and online learning sucks. And, he, and they're like, but we really like it. You know, they said my, my kids like wants to do it. And, you know, that's, that's really satisfying as a designer and a product person to, know that the experience you're creating is somewhat fun, even though study yeah. can be a chore for many people. Yeah. And that's the, that's the goal. I mean, people are trying to, especially with products, like that's like the dream. It's like building products that people love and just can't get enough of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you look at some of the ones out there that people are just going crazy over. I mean, I, I, one thing that pops in mind right now is superhuman in terms of email. Yes. People, people are just in love with that. And you look at what they've done to build that to make it faster to make it intuitive to the onboarding process and everything around that that they built a product that 
I mean, people are obsessed with it. <laughs> it's it's kind of insane what how that's grown, but that's like that's the goal and understanding that getting that feedback from people and all the things that go into that to make those products. I mean, it's obviously not easy. Otherwise, every product would be something people love in theory. Um, it's true, and it's know. a balance. You know, it's a balance between going overboard on over designing too quickly. To you know, what is that? Why is that balance of minimum viable product, but not just so minimum that it's a crappy experience? Um, because I've seen that too. You know, I think sometimes utilitarian products are fine like that. You know, when you're getting a job done, it can be very just bare bones. But if you try to go for delight or engagement, true engagement, then yeah, it, it takes it takes guts to know how much effort to put into it and how much to pull back. It's constantly a you know a a fine line. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and looking back at what you've already done with every day, I mean, what have you struggled with or what's been the, maybe the biggest challenge for you as you've, as you've been building every day the last uh, year or two? I think the biggest challenge is how do we iterate quickly on marketing experiments um, and find solutions. A lot of our marketing experiments, are, we're realizing are more relationship driven. And so it takes time to build those relationships. Uh, so that's, you know, just keeping on going with them when you're, it's slow to build. Um, so I think SEO is a good example of this. You know, you're not going to see results from SEO until a minimum three to four months, if not kind of six to seven months. Yeah. And just having faith that that's the strategy and direction that you want to go in in order to grow the company and that, you know, you believe that that's going to pay off. Um, so just, yeah, believing in the direction we're going in. And with that too, I mean, that, to your point, like, trusting in what you're doing i mean with the seo especially i mean it just takes so much time but if you know ahead of time that that's what the route you want to go and you understand that you're doing the things that are right on a day-to-day basis i mean i look at the reason why i have show notes for instance for just go grind it was understanding that i i knew that on like the kind of the, the long tail of having every episode with each founder would be searched as their name is searched yeah. and that's brought thousands of visitors to the site now each month after you know two years plus years of doing that, where I could have just not done much on the show notes and not really cared about it, but then you look at the long tail and how SEO has helped, then people are coming to the site because of that, and a lot of businesses can get the same thing, um, especially as they create more and more content around what they're doing. And and one thing I always like to ask founders because typically you're super Type A driven, uh, <laughs> obsessive about really? the companies. <laughs> what I know, surprising. I, I yeah. know, but. How do you then recharge or step away from work, Christine? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, what is recharging? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really consciously try and do this more these days um, because, you know, I've been through what I would call burnout and just, you know, needing needing to recharge. I think we all do, particularly with everything that's going on in the world right now. It's, it's really vital. So I have a dog and... Ooh. Husband and I like to hike and get out, and so I tend to tend to do those things. Probably tend to drink a few watermelon margaritas during summer. Ooh, <laughs> clutch! <laughs> that so that works. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one, Christine. <laughs> yeah, so no, just just try and I mean weekends. I still work weekends, but I try to limit it in terms of how much I work. So I'll get up in the morning. I make pancakes and on the weekend. That's my thing. Ooh. And after I make those, I work for a while. And then around kind of three o'clock, I try and switch off and do some exercise or get out of the house. It is 
fascinating hearing different entrepreneurs and, and these type A people and how they recharge, how they unplug a little bit, because there's so many different ways to go about it. And there's no right answer, obviously. I just think I like to ask every entrepreneur, every founder, every CEO, because of the fact that for someone just getting started or understanding how to build a company, like there's so many different ways to go about it. Uh, so finding what was, what works best for you is important and there's no right answer. And that's, I think the important piece to know is I think a lot of times we're, we're searching for the right answer, the correct thing. We're trying to find out what's quote unquote perfect, but there's so many different things that work and no judgment either way. I mean, if you're going to work on week on weekends, so be it. You're building this company you want to build. And uh, that's one way to go about it. But I think also understanding at the core, what's important to you. And you mentioned having a dog, having a husband, there's like other things to, that balance it out. Yeah. It's a work in progress. I think for all of us, <laughs> how we get yeah. that balance. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I am completely in love with what I do and I get excited about working on weekends, which is yeah. weird for some people, I guess, but I'm like, Oh, I want to go solve this problem. I'm curious about like this next set of creative for Facebook. I mean, sounds Sounds lame, but I am. So <laughs> that way I'm, I'm quite satisfied working. It doesn't feel like a chore, but I know if I do it too much, it's also not good for us. You know, we yeah. need that social time, that downtime. And to step away, that's how you really can see some perspective on the business too, which can be very hard as a founder. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, how great to find, you know, to find that thing, to find that thing you, you love and that thing you want to work on. And that's echoed by basically every founder. That's why they're doing it because they want to be doing it. Otherwise they, they wouldn't work those insane hours. Yeah. Unless they'd all be in high paying jobs at a much better yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's a much different story. Yeah. And, and, and with every day, where can people go to learn more about what you're doing, what you're working on and connect with you as well? Absolutely. Uh, so our website is everyday.com. That's spelled D-A-E at the end. So with an E instead of a Y. And from there, we have a contact us form if you want to reach out there. You can also find me on LinkedIn as well. Always happy to connect with people. Great. I will be sure to link those up as well in the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast so you can get links to everything mentioned in the episode every day as well. And Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Justin, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.